0: Welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I have a guest named Chris Athens. He's an awesome mastering engineer with a ton of experience. As you'll hear in this episode, he's done everything from the latest Drake releases to Mac Miller to Paris to Rick Ross, P. Diddy, Wiz Khalifa, all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. Um, I think we get into some really, really cool things on this episode. And talk a lot about where the mastering engineer's process is and how crazy it is in the major label world of this stuff and all sorts of other stuff so after you get done with this head over to chris's profile get to know his discography his spotify playlist his bio and enjoy it check it out One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service. And we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out if you like this and like what we're doing. Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out. And please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today?
1: Yeah, it's pretty simple, actually. It, it's a hybrid, just like most of the stuff I do. It's a very old RCA-44 that I, inv- I inherited from my father, and uh, a, an Apollo uh, from UAD, right into the computer.
0: Very cool. Um, you spoke of that you inherited this from your father. Do I imagine uh, your background in music has something to do Nothing with it. Nothing at
1: all. Although yeah, really? he was a drummer, he had a little bit of talent. He would uh, <coughs> he'd play the drums at our, at our house, and uh, he was actually pretty good. But at one point in his life, he was a, a professional drummer. And by professional, I mean, you know, like a guy who was a band leader at a Holiday Inn kind of thing, you know, <laughs> where he, they'd play samba and, and some popular stuff and whatever. But uh, his, his uh, specialty was news, actually. He had a real job. And ah, yeah he was uh, he was good at it, so uh he he worked for CBS News in New York for most of his career. probably the, uh, I'm a little biased, but probably the greatest broadcast journalist ever.
0: <laughs> wow. now I, I don't want to look, as a news junkie, now I want to look at Radio
1: 88, look it up. Art Athens. He was a great one. Yeah. In fact, uh, that's not uh, that's not an original quote. That's Andy Rooney said when my father passed away. He said it was the wow. greatest broadcast journalist he ever knew.
0: Wow. And he that, knew what Craig and Andy Rooney's is cri- one crikey, not giving compliments no. type of asshole. He, and he was really like days. that. <laughs> it wasn't a
1: shtick. My father knew him. In fact, my father – Probably got his love of woodworking from Andy Rooney. The Andy Rooney had a huh. a place in upstate New York, and so did my father. And, of course, my father was a huge fan of his, and, and they knew each other from CBS. He would go occasionally, like, have lunch with him and hang out with him and stuff. And that's, I think, where he picked – because Andy Rooney was a big-time woodworker, like, really good. Yeah, I, I, I can
0: – I can literally remember, and Andy, I would watch this every. Uh, I would watch sixty minutes every week, obviously, and uh, I can remember him putting up like a bird feeder yeah. for an analogy on one of the episodes. <laughs> and just be like, where the he hell was does really this guy serious, and he from? had
1: a, uh, a a real full on wood shop at his house.
0: Okay, so that wasn't where you got into music. Tell me about where <laughs> you got into music.
1: So, I don't know, man. I really don't. It, it was everybody. We listened to a lot of music in my house, and. Uh, Music was always the thing I was most drawn to. I was a pretty eclectic kid with a wide-ranging interest, but uh, kept coming back to music. And and, uh, I never really had the discipline or uh, the—I don't know what—the myopic focus to get great at any of the instruments I tried. You know, I play a lot of things, but uh, I don't play any of them well. It kind of led to you know being on the other side of the glass, so to speak. So.
0: So did you start as a producer? I actually
1: – I wanted to be a rich and famous mixer. That was my goal hmm. when I uh, yes. went to Sterling Sound. I frankly didn't know really what mastering was. I was that naive and I, I went to uh, – I'm sorry, not Sterling. Uh, Sony is where I started and, and uh, I ended up kind of – they offered me a job in the tape library and I turned them down because I was idealistic hmm. and wrong. And, uh, I went, I, you know, I went back to the music store that I was running and managing and, and I heard the, in, the, ent- uh, the intro to enter Sandman just one too many times and, uh, had to quit. <laughs> Dude, that's so, that
0: is so funny that, that, and what's my age again is what made me quit guitar, guitar <laughs> center after three days. Absolutely. So funny.
1: I mean, I, I was at my wit's end, so, you know, I basically, uh, uh, I called the guy back who had offered me the job and begged him for anything. He had already, already secured somebody for that job. So he, it, it took eight months. Uh, I I called him. He said to me, actually, um, he said he really liked me. So he basically said, you know what? Just call me like once a month, and I'll let you know. Mm. And I called him for eight months wow. until he gave me a job being a librarian in the Sony Music Vault. And That was how I started, and and I delivered, primarily what I was doing was delivering tapes, and mostly to the mastering engineers. Sony had a big internal business where they were doing a ton of reissue. I I joined up with Sony right around the time that they were doing a ton of reissue, and that's how I uh, uh, kind of fell into mastering, I basically just from observing it and, and, and talking to the guys that were doing it. I realized something just... Clicked one day, and I realized it was something I could do, probably pretty well.
0: And the, yeah, they they were a very famous oh, mastering yeah. studio. With like Vlad, oh, those and are that,
1: those are my Vlado, Kevin Buteau, Vic Anasini, and Mark Wilder are the guys mm-hmm. that taught me how to do this. And without them, I don't know what I'd be doing. I'd be doing something else.
0: Hmm. Very cool. So you're working there, you're delivering masters. How do you end up becoming well, a mastering engineer? You know,
1: I I. I I was begging the management there to put me into the into the technical department anywhere, the cassette room. We had a cassette room back then, you know, Mm -hmm. making DAC copies. So, 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 so what This has got to be. This is before 1998 because in '98 I went, I quit, and I went to Sterling. So uh, this had to be. Let's see. I was an engineer there for four years, and I was a tape librarian for three. So that's seven years, uh, probably 91. And, uh, you know, I can, I begged those guys for years just to, I was trying to get my foot in the door in any way they would let me. It took a long time. It took, I was a good librarian. Mm -hmm. I think they had no reason to want to move me. That's (laughs) uh, that's the good business. But
0: advice for a lot of people is don't be too good at a shitty job. Exactly. You you know,
1: I, I, I aspire to other things and it, it was frustrating for me and and for them. And eventually, I I, I pulled the old uh, ultimatum, and they didn't want to lose me, so they found a spot for me on the night shift making tape copies. Uh, to and they gave me that job, I think, to shut me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh,
0: and and then you realized how miserable it was living in the opposite <laughs> hours of everyone. It was else. weird,
1: that's for sure. I mean, I, I had. I was going home at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, and little did I know that would be my life for about 15 years, and it had nothing to do with the tape library. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you know, being a, a younger mastering engineer, that's the road you got to take, or at least that was my path. Yeah, I, 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 it was lonely and weird and miserable, but I had the room and a lot of time, and I got to read a lot of manuals and practice a lot of stuff.
0: Interesting. So you make your way over to Sterling. And then well, what it's only I,
1: I, I very quickly shot up the uh, I, I don't know how you'd uh, describe it. I guess the rankings. I mean, it was a it, it was a very weird place because it was a um, one of the last big union shops in New York and I, maybe the country. And I was I was a member of the International Brotherhood of the Electrical Workers. We had a union huh. and we had negotiations and all that stuff. But what that also does, unfortunately, is kind of stifles. It, it, it moderates everything, including the, your ability to, to kind of rise up on your, of your own accord and uh, slowed things down a little bit. But it couldn't slow me down because I would rather do this than anything else. And so I managed to break through just out of sheer will, really, not, not even extraordinary talent and certainly not experience. I got it. Might have been just you know being friendly and bullshitting a lot. I mean, it could have been that too. Like uh, the guys that hired me liked me, and and I did a lot of mm. reissue work at Sony while I was cutting my teeth, which I think is probably, at least in my imagination, the the greatest single way to learn everything about mastering that there is, because mm-hmm. I, I reissued every kind of music from heavy metal to Miles Davis to country. Like serious country and Willie Nelson and George mm. Jones, and the the great thing about that is it's kind of like well it's a double edged sword but it's sort of shooting fish in a barrel because you got uh, a pre existing benchmark of quality in the previously mm-hmm. released record. Now some of them didn't sound that great and some of them sounded amazing. But making something that doesn't sound that great sound a little bit better is also a worthwhile challenge and a learning opportunity. So. I got to, you know, sort of match wits with the greats that had passed on and, you know, do that kind of thing. And for several years and slowly I pecked away at the new music thing, really the only guy doing new music seriously there was Vlado. And uh, he Mm -hmm. wasn't going anywhere. So I I just sort of stuck around. And actually, Vlado probably uh, started my career. Not only did he teach me how to cut vinyl. Before, while I was still in the, in the tape library. But he, he also, uh, I started working with Raucous Records
0: uh, when okay, they yeah, first started. Yeah, totally. and
1: that was what kind of kick-started my career, especially with urban music. I, I, I worked with a guy who was part owner, this guy Jared, uh, very closely. He used to bring the tapes to me. Literally, he'd come to the session with the tapes tucked under his arm. And Vlado didn't want to do those records because Raucous didn't have enough money so he just didn't care he was like you do it kid literally uh, so i took over working with raucous and they were doing singles and one thing mm-hmm. led to another they did their first artist record that wasn't a compilation and that was uh, most Deaf and talib Kweli black star that's awesome I, did, I had i had no I, I did
0: not see that on your discography that's I, I regard uh the the record release show after that record came out at the Ning factory as one of the best shows yeah I've ever been it, to. it, it
1: they were phenomenal and and they were kids man they were kids they were like I mean I got a very late start so I was a young engineer I wasn't a young person you know I was like 30 when I started engineering and and uh, these guys Mm. were literally kids I mean Mm. I'm still friends with Duro the guy who mixed the record who was also a kid but we were in that session and uh, it was you know the first time Ruckus had put Mm. out a an artist driven record that wasn't a compilation and they they all showed up. So it was me, Duro, Mostef, Talib Kwali, and this guy who I thought was somebody's little brother. And they kept I thought it was really cute because like during the session they kept when I would stop after doing something and say, What do you think? They'd all turn around and they'd look at this kid and say, <laughs> What do you think? And I was like, isn't that nice? You know, they're like including somebody's little brother so closely like that 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 like they're mentoring and this is really cool. And at one point, you know, <laughs> I, I did something and I stopped the music. And I said, what do you think? To most deaf and telequilly. And they were like, well, I like it. And they turned around and they looked at the kid and they said, what do you think? And he didn't hear him. So they repeated themselves. And I started to think, why do they care so much what this kid thinks? And it turns out he was he was high tech. He was the producer. Oh, so funny. He looked like he was, so he like he was so 12. Funny. I couldn't believe it. I was like, <laughs> man, I'm like an old man in this room. Jeez, these guys are like killing it. And they're literally kids, I mean, barely out of their teens. So uh, that was an exciting thing. You know, I, I, at the time I had no idea that it would become kind of a sort of a classic for people who are real heads, you know? Um, But it did. And, and um, all the credit goes to, uh, to really to Duro and to the boys because the production was excellent. And of course, Most Def and Talib are kind of geniuses. And then the, you know, the record already sounded great. I just didn't screw it up yeah and that's that
0: that that was definitely a lightning in a bottle Mm -hmm. performances type of record like where those guys just so so on fire fire. really
1: just the kind of amazing they were ahead of their time
0: so you do this raucous stuff how does this keep
1: leading well basically what happened was new york is a very urban or was a very urban centric town and i think it's still i I mean that's that's
0: where i am yeah that's where i am right now it still
1: is and and you know the the rock and roll still happens largely in California. I mean, obviously, there are scenes everywhere, but, you know, the, the, that, that's what you find. And in, the, in New York, there's industry, and there's the urban music happening kind of, like, right there. And uh, so there was a ton of it, especially when I was coming up. And the raucous thing led to a lot of international because people who were into backpack hip-hop, that yes. was, like, the, the ultra. <laughs> a, t- a
0: term for the kids who aren't listening was a very uh, – Uh, interesting way of saying um, hip hop that wasn't about shooting people and getting nice cars it was about more intellectual pursuits call it what you want, conscious hip hop
1: -hop. or backpack hip hop or Japanese teenagers love to listen to this or whatever you want to call it (laughs) I literally used to get phone calls from, you know, Japan saying, oh you, you uh, master Pharaoh Munch like, yeah, (laughs) I did oh, we like that very much And I mean, I'd end up doing all these Japanese records and stuff. God bless them. They so informed, you know what I mean? Like the most informed when they get into something, they're into it big time. They knew all the names, all, I mean, really great, great fans, you know? So I I got a lot of music from around the world as a result of this and, and, you know, most of it independent. And, uh, that kind of gave me the, uh, sort of the, a little bit of confidence and I, 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 Honestly, I, I fell into the job at Sterling, too, because I had just assumed I would stay at, at Sony and then I'd duke it out with Vlado when the time came, you know, like for who's, mm. who's the bad guy on the block. And, and I, I never even thought I had the curriculum vitae for a place like Sterling. And, and really what happened with that was one of the girls that used to book the mastering rooms at Sony got a job at Sterling. And about, I think it was a year later, she called me up and she said, hey, do you want to be Tom Coyne's assistant? And I, you know, they offered me more money than I was making at Sony as an engineer. So I said, yes, I, I, you know, I figured I'd take a chance and take a step back and be somebody I had never really been anybody's assistant for any length of time. And uh, I man, my eyes got opened when I went to Sterling. Yeah, I mean what a what a talent farm that they have. Well had the talent the back pool time. is ridiculous. And the, the also all of those guys, the things that the things that are kinda of subtle that you don't see from the outside beside the talent and the discographies, is that in their own ways, every single one of those guys is a total alpha male. Like they they're, mm, they're out to kill, you know? Hmm. And there's a lot of competition, even amongst the guys that work there. That explains a lot, man. I never
0: thought of it that way. That's oh, yeah. that's really because I I I have you know, had some experiences I won't talk about on the air that we'll have to talk privately about sometime but yes, sir. Uh, oh, you, you I know you you just opened up a, an idea can of worms in my head wow that's yeah, really interesting.
1: It, it, they're very not just talented. You don't get there if I mean you could if you if you were me and you got lucky. I got I you mm. know I came in through the back door as an assistant and then I just <laughs> destroyed you know they they had no choice but to Make me a mastering engineer. They basically fired me as an assistant and gave me a pay cut, and mm. then and then That's said, the "Okay, way. you're on commission, and you can be a mastering engineer, and you work around Tom, you know, in his schedule, which was really brutal." Oh yeah, so you, so this was, was the, one of the, the
0: Sterling After Dark. Phase, this is I guess before this they even s-
1: invented that bullshit. <laughs> I, I was Sterling After Dark. Trust me, buddy. I yeah, was there uh, every night until four or five in the morning oh, and man. back at eleven oh yeah you know yeah, and yeah. doing doing tom's i i there was a lot of crossover too when they fired me as his assistant i had to train the next guy and you know the, also tom was oh, unbelievably yeah. busy i mean he needed mm-hmm. and back then just making the parts was a huge undertaking because every major label release sent out multiple uh masters to the plants and cut vinyl for everything and i mean it was a lot you know cassette masters all of that stuff so All that work still had to be done, and I did some of it and some of my own, but the hours were brutal.
0: Yeah, I, I, there, there was one point when I uh, started working for Alan Douchess that one of us would overlap about four hours a day, but we'd both be doing a 12 to 14 hour day, doing an overlap yeah. every day. And it, it's just, you know, it's not the best way to live, but you also learn a ton yeah, very well, fast. Yeah, well, that was what
1: happened to me. It was accelerated learning. They, I could take as much abuse as they could dish out, which is, I think, the the single greatest. A lot of people went in and out of Sterling's doors. They, they tried yeah. a lot of dudes. I mean, they tried a lot of people. The only people who stuck around are the people who could make the money. And mm-hmm. uh, I was able to do that. So, you know, Tom was very generous. He, he, It's easy to be generous when you're the busiest guy in the world, basically. And, mm-hmm. and there was stuff he didn't want to do. And our booking mm-hmm. manager, the one that we shared, had tremendous confidence in me. So, you know, she introduced me to Bad Boy. I did every record they put out for about eight years. And they, she was always trying to sell me, and and that accelerated the curve of my career. And you know, I, I didn't screw records up. So if you don't screw records up, and somebody else is kind of saying, hey, this guy's great, you know, who's in the mm-hmm. right position, you end up getting a lot of work. And I worked real hard, but I also had, I got lucky.
0: Nice. I, I think that's also a very good way of putting what mastering often is. is uh, you don't screw it up and you work really hard. And you're responsive when things go wrong or things are needed yeah, to be changed. Yeah, it's the
1: Hippocratic Oath of mastering.
0: Don't, mm, don't, I like don't fuck this up. <laughs> yeah. Because well, there is a thing with production that a lot of it's about enhancing it. But so much time is with mastering, you get handed something that's great. And it's like, improve this a little or don't fuck it up, but definitely don't fuck yeah, it up. Yeah.
1: That's the most important thing because it's still great if you don't do anything. If you get something handed to you that's great. I mean, that's not a challenge. The challenge is to kind of understand your own impulses and to control yourself. Like, you don't, if the, you know, another DB at 3K doesn't make it sound better, just different, you mm-hmm. have to know the difference and have the discipline to not do something. That's great. I, I, I really uh, like that. So, you now have your own studio. How well, did we get there? Well, 12 and a half years at Sterling is how we got here. I, I probably stayed five years too long. But a lot of things happened in that time, and, and I had some health issues and some uh, things that I didn't even know were happening, like Lyme disease and stuff like that. Oh, I just, geez, I just thought I was tired and burnt yeah. out. But it was more my, than that. My best
0: friend's going through that right now, so I'm really sorry to hear it's that. It's tough. I didn't
1: know that was what was going on until my face, half of my face fell. And I had uh bell's palsy and and you know uh I had no idea what was going on. I just thought I was tired and um burnt out and it wasn't that it was medical issues and all kinds of other things. so I ended up staying longer than I probably should have. I think eight years would have been the sweet spot I mean you know hindsight's twenty twenty but uh those eight years were great for me, and then after that it started a kind of plateau and then crash in around me but uh, I was pretty miserable the last couple of years and no fault of anybody there I just I didn't want to see the same damn faces anymore you know I just got tired of everybody and everything and and didn't want to do it really and was kind of at odds with myself and that all changed when I fell in love and and had a kid so we were scheming the last year to get out of there and move down here to Austin and uh, I had done everything I could do at Sterling and for those guys and you know, it was time to do it for myself. So just kind of figured I planned for the worst, which was having to rebuild my career from scratch and, and having to, uh, start over basically.
0: So you found that, that did you actually find that that was starting? your Not career at all. From
1: scratch? Actually, I, 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 came down here uh, and it w- I was, I've been busy ever since. I mean, there was no hiccup. I had Maybe one or two slow-ish months where I still made money, and the rest of the time has been gangbusters. Uh, I mean, I came down here, and I don't even remember how many years ago it was. Maybe three and a half. It's going on four now because we came down in late June, and I was right in the middle of uh, Rick Ross record, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't get him to finish up. You know, of course Murphy's Law. it kept mm-hmm. pushing back. I actually spent a week in New York by myself with my. Family down here sleeping on my brother's couch because I, I was still in the middle of this Rick Ross record. They just wouldn't finish. I finally got a weekend where I jumped in my car, grabbed my dog, stuck him in, in the car or the truck, and and we drove eighteen hundred miles. And I literally got back to work as soon as I got here, and I've been working ever since. So things worked out way better than I expected. And and you know business. I'm probably not doing the billing that I was at the height of my insanity at Sterling, Mm -hmm. which was an outrageous amount of money. But um, it was... that's not the way to live your life. That's not the way to live your life, uh, uh, for sure. Like, my life is completely different now. I'll leave that stuff to the suckers. Like, I I realized when I came down here, I determined that hell or high water, I was going to re-envision how I worked and that mm -hmm. I was going to invest in a team that worked for me and, you know, t- my turn to be the boss, basically. Yes. And that's what I did. I, I, it took me about a year and a half to get an assistant, mostly because I was so busy that I couldn't even think about looking for somebody. And my wife finally got to the end of her rope and was like, you're an idiot. You need to stop complaining about how much work you're doing, because it was like 14 hours a day, and mm-hmm. stop doing it. And she made two incredible suggestions, one being a guy that I used to work with at Sterling as a, my booking manager. And he would work remotely because he's in New York. And, and I mm-hmm. was like, he's not going to want to do that because he had a gig at NYU doing some engineering stuff and whatever. But I, uh, she made me call him, and I called him, and he said, yeah, I'll do that. I want to do that. And so I didn't even have to train him. He, he just knew exactly what to do. So that was easy. Mm. And then the other guy is my assistant who is here in Austin and works with me directly. Who I just she, my wife she wrote she wrote up a Craigslist ad, which I thought was ridiculous who write who gets an assistant from Craigslist
0: but yes. <laughs> I, I
1: didn't have time to do anything else, and she had just beat me down till I just said yes, and she did it, we posted it about twelve people responded, and we did this mm-hmm. one marathon day where we interviewed everybody, and I was just like, nope, nope, nope. Mm-hmm. We literally got to the last guy and uh and he's been with me now for three years and and is amazing
0: uh that's really cool yeah and it is i think the rarest thing on earth to find somebody through craigslist yeah <laughs> but i think the thing that's the thing though is usually you don't find the, the right assistant in, in the place you thought that they no were that's come true from.
1: the right people in general i mean you know i didn't think that uh my booking manager kurt was going to be available or interested and well, i was just totally downtrodden when i was doing these interviews with these kids and people who were just not a good fit and then um uh, the last, like I said, the last guy came along and, and we, I has asked him a few ca- questions and he answered everything just right. And I was like, you know what? Just come to my house tomorrow. Let's just do three months and see what happens. And he's been with <laughs> me ever since. He's, he's, he's really – those two guys are the key to my existence because mm. I was able to essentially make more money than when I was working for the guys at Sterling and work less. I mean who, yes, does, who doesn't great. want that? You know, like yeah, I, that's I the goal. have two kids now and I want to see them. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to hate me when I'm old. Well, I'm already old, mm-hmm. but when I'm, when <laughs> <You're> I'm older, <laughs> when I'm older, you know, and, and I'm that guy who they never got to talk to or never got to see. So I, I work out of my house. I, I, I sealed off this really large, like family room that this mm-hmm. was supposed to be a temporary fix until I built a real studio and I, I sealed it off and I did some, you know, off the shelf, mostly treatments. Some of them kind of fancy, but off-the-shelf tr- treatments for the walls. <laughs> Put up my speakers and, and my pile of gear, and started rolling. And I haven't stopped since. I mean, I actually haven't had time to build uh, the studio.
0: I've been too busy doing work. That's so. I assume most of your work is all unattended.
1: Unattended is my middle name. <laughs> Unat- unattended. <laughs> unattended is my life. This is a, a revelation. I. I've had three attended sessions in almost four years, and two of them <laughs> have been the client dropping off the hard drives.
0: That's one really them,
1: funny. I ones. only did one. I did one attended session, and it was with Robert Glasper, if you're familiar with him. He's a I'm great not. kind of modern jazz keyboard player. Anyway, gotcha. Grammy winner, as a matter of fact. Two years ago, I think it was. He won a – wait, where's my plaque? <laughs> it's – um. He won a Grammy a couple of years ago for of all things R and B, but he's really a jazz artist. Oh, anyway, well, um, that sounds that sounds
0: like the Grammy he's getting. The yeah, well, he had a, he had a
1: lot of people singing on his project and stuff like duets, and it was I it see. was pretty interesting. So they gave him an R and B Grammy, but he was as surprised as anybody else. But the uh, Robert came down. I I actually like him personally. Mm. And he called me and his, his, the guy who was helping to produce the record called me and they were like, can we come down? And I said, okay, here's the deal. One day we sit down, we edit. I don't want to hear any questions about the sound. I don't want to hear anybody evaluating my room. You guys don't know it. I do. Trust me. Mm-hmm. And they did it. They were like, okay, we'll come down. We'll just edit. Cause he had crazy ideas about transitions and stuff like that. And it was just easier to do it in person. So we did it in person and it was great. And he went home, but really I've done effectively none. Since I've been here, and I lost a couple of records as a result. One of them Mm -hmm. I'm bummed about because I like the guy who mixed it. One of them I couldn't care less about because I didn't. I didn't really want those guys in my house. (laughs) Yes, I uh, I understand that one too. (laughs) If you know what I mean, they're just you know crazy people. And uh, so, but other than that, you know, and maybe some records I don't, I never heard about, I haven't lost out on anything. I've gotten a lot of stuff done and I'm able to adjust my day. See, my, I've spoiled my clients. They're used to mm-hmm. not booking in advance, not, you know, not telling me what they need, getting stuff right away. The only mm-hmm. way that kind of stuff happens if you don't is if you don't have someone sitting behind you in the middle of their record. Where you, you can't stop and say, hey, dude, I need to take a break for half an hour to do this revision on blah, blah, blah. Yep. You know, that's something you and can. They and also,
0: they also don't always realize that's a good thing to do because then yeah. your head gets reset. reset the the reset other thing is that.
1: that as a result of having two little kids and and working at home, like my kids break my door down all the time and just come in screaming. I don't even know mm-hmm. what they're saying. Half the time <laughs> they, they come in, they just scream a bunch of stuff and run back out. But they interrupt me constantly. and. You know, you can either be okay with that, or you can be completely like freaked out. So mm. I, I choose to be okay with it, and uh, you know, I take a lot of pool breaks. You know, me and the kids go in the pool, and that's kind of nice. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. When it's nice out, we go in the pool. What's wrong with that? Can't do You that can't do New that York. in New York. I, you know, I traded a six hundred and twenty square foot like luxury loft condominium with a doorman for a three thousand square foot. House on three acres, you know. It's very nice, and oh, I paying less for it. I mean, that's the magic of not living in New York. As much as I love New York, born and raised, I love New York. Don't get me wrong; it's the best place ever. But I'm a I'm a better tourist now than I am someone living there. You know, it's not for me anymore. So gotcha. You know, so doing what I'm doing down here is the best situation for me.
0: So, I imagine you also are of the mind, too, and as somebody who, you know, has been on both sides of producing and mastering, I used to torture my mastering engineers with going to the session and... You know, I'd sit there and I'd be like, this isn't right. And you're exactly right. Like what you said, like you don't know the room, you don't know the speakers. And you know, there are some things that in general, it's like if the mixes aren't right and yeah. you're not turning up the treble and you're like, you know, I do want this record to be brighter. Sure. That's a concept that can be spoken of. But 99% of the decisions are better made when somebody's hearing it on the system they're used to Absolutely. and can A-B to records they're doing. So you, I imagine you find that to be Well, the, the real evaluation
1: thing. doesn't really start until then. You know, then mm-hmm. the, this other that's stuff, actually, that's
0: a great way of putting it. That's there's the no, moment. I
1: mean, there are occasionally some in the moment things, issues that happen between you and the artist in a, in an attended session that are valuable. So it's a trade, mm-hmm. it's a trade off, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it's, the trade off is worth it wildly, not just for my peace of mind and lifestyle, but it's worth it to my clients. And it always has been. Um, mm-hmm. you know it's it there those things that would normally happen in an attended session can be figured out other ways and but the stuff where like they gotta go home and listen on their system that's every time and that's mm-hmm. it, it, it's the most valuable thing that they do they're not making decisions in the room like all right man print it it's like all right man make me a ref and I'll go listen to it at home and that's how it should be
0: i like that i think that's a great way to put it so so you touched on something that brings me to my next question uh what's the coolest piece of gear you have there well
1: probably was my masterpiece which was designed by rupert neve uh which has all kinds of weird gizmos in it and it's just awesome sounding but it's Mm -hmm. that's no longer the coolest piece of gear in my room Mm. coolest piece of gear in my room is the finest technology 1961 has to offer it's uh a Neumann AM32 lathe, and uh, oh wow, I didn't realize you cut you cut there. It's That's big, great. it's heavy, and it is mean. It think Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's just the amplifiers. My the guy who is my main tech uh, with regards to the lathe. Is a genius named Chris Muth. who's also the oh
0: yeah. yeah he's totally. the
1: design mind behind Dangerous Music and all of their yep. gear. Uh, and, I went to his house
0: and picked up uh, Dangerous Summing Bus number ten back in the day. Ha-ha.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I, I think I might have had two. Um, it's hmm. uh, it, it it's hard to do stuff like this without a guy like Chris. And thank goodness he exists. That I, I w- actually wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have dipped my toe or my whole damn foot or my ass back into cutting <laughs> vinyl if it wasn't for Chris Muth, because i don't know any other techs that work on uh lathes and stuff but i i've known chris since my first days at at uh, sterling and mm. he's always been the smartest guy in the room basically so um yeah he's, he seems like he's a rare mind he's a rare he's you know what it, it's it kind of pisses me off he's He's a better bass player than I am, and <laughs> he's also vastly better at anything having to do with technology, and he's a damn good mastering engineer, too. So mm. he's one of those guys that you can just do anything he puts his head to. It's very, it's, uh, it's both uh, inspiring and disconcerting, but that would be the best piece of gear or the, the most interesting and exciting piece of gear in my room is my whole cutting rig, which is sounding great.
0: That's awesome. So, how, so about how much vinyl do you end up cutting these days? For Well, releases? this has
1: been something that has been in the works for almost two years, but uh, we actually just got started. He, Chris found this lathe, and we, uh, I purchased it, and he drove it down from New York about wow. two months ago and spent wow. a week setting it up. And uh, I actually haven't done any commercial cutting yet. I've just been playing with it.
0: Very cool. That's rad. I can't wait to Big see what things, you do friend. with it. Nice. Okay. So let's get back into something we were talking about with changes and stuff. I feel like there's a lot of animosity today from engineers about the whole fact that artists are making decisions up to the last second of release. Ah. So we just had this article that I saw about you on MTV that you were doing the changes on Drake's record up to the last second. Tell us like what a lot of the time those changes look like, what the process looks like, like and why you see this occurring, and what your feelings are. about give me a, give me the whole onslaught. Well,
1: and it really, it, it it runs the whole gamut. I mean, it, it with regards to the last record with Drake that I did, the last minute stuff was really more about mix changes. They they were changing their mind about certain elements in the mix, a, or a small arrangement thing, or a, a change in kind of the the transition between songs really there was very little in the way of eq changes which is part Mm. to do with the fact that noel gadget and uh uh, 40 know what they're doing Mm. and they know Mm -hmm. they know what they want phenomenally
0: great great work. very good
1: very good very focused and they're not crazy i deal with a lot of crazy these guys aren't Mm -hmm. crazy it's just they're you know drake is a very creative guy and at the last mm-hmm. minute they want to do stuff, that's what they're set up for. And so the best way to serve that, a project like that, is just to be as flexible as possible and to be fast and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of have your all your shit together. So that's what I try to do with, with those projects. And I understand going into them that they might be late night, they might be early morning, there might be a lot of changes, but that's okay with me. And uh, it's a pleasure working with those guys because they, they're so together. You know, it's still challenging, mm. but we got through it. Also, there's a there's probably, they would know more about this than me, but there's probably some strategic advantages to kind of not having the record finished until the very last minute.
0: I think you are exactly right, because then you don't get the opinions of people who are thinking about That's dollar right. signs That's instead right. of creativity. That's right, no interference,
1: and they don't want that. They're real artists. They don't want to be, they honestly don't want to be, they don't want the money guys getting involved at all. And I don't blame them. That's, That's the way art should be.
0: I 100% with you. So now, to the point that I think that there's a lot of animosity towards this, do you see this being less so Parkinson's law and things taking up and filling the time till the last minute of the deadline? Or is this actual just creative development that as they hear a clearer picture of what they're doing, that they get more perspective? In the case of
1: somebody like Drake, it's most decidedly the latter. They Mm. are, you know, really... Is it the latter or former? <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> this is the latter. Yeah, at least that's what I think you're going to say. They are uh, they're very very professional and v- even though they you know some of the stuff they do might be a hassle for the label or whatever, maybe even a hassle for me, you know, compared to other things that are easy. They they know what they're doing and they're just they're taking their options, you know, and applying mm. their. Opinion, and they're they're trying to get a big view of something that they're working very closely on. So they're very very deliberate. Uh, mm, I have other great, clients. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I have other clients that aren't at all. They're just that are just embody chaos, and mm-hmm. uh, you know they they fill up the time because the time is there. I mean, it's a well known industry trick that the labels will tell them that the record is due two weeks before it's actually due. And yes. <laughs> artists know that now and just blow right through the first release date. They, they don't even pay attention to it. So it really mm-hmm. depends on the artist, the level of discipline the artist has. Some some musical artists are like creative people that are very crazy and just kind of in between partying and driving around and doing whatever. They're making an album. And then there's mm-hmm. other people, you know, kind of like Drake, who are just very focused and have their eye on the prize and they want it all. You know, they want all the time, all the options. They they want mm. the thing to be as perfect as, as it can be. You know, I don't, I don't think that guy, I could be wrong, but I don't think that guy does anything by accident.
0: I, I think you're right. And I think that that's most great visionary artists is that they have an emotion in them that they're trying to fulfill. And every time they hear a, a contradiction to that emotion, they have to fix it or it's going to make them insane. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it must be difficult. <laughs> I, I'm okay with, uh, except when it comes to mastering, I'm kind of okay with uh, a little bit of chaos and it just asked my wife in my life. I don't, <laughs> I don't mind it.
0: So what's the biggest mistake you see somebody do before the mastering? You know, I, I
1: think probably there are a lot of small mistakes, but I think the, the biggest one of them is, is probably confusing level with sound quality and, and there's a, I think there's a thing that people know in the back of their minds when they're asking you to make something that's already really loud louder. It's almost wishful thinking, kind of like you can do that, right? Like they're just sort of – they're throwing it out there. And if I don't protest, I, su- I suppose they think like the, they can do it.
0: To clarify, you're talking about an individual part in a mix or the no. record louder as a whole?
1: No, I'm talking the record louder as a whole, which is my gotcha. responsibility most yes. of the time, you know? And if when I send something back, generally speaking, occasionally, you know, maybe I miss the mark a little bit. But when I send something back to somebody, that's the level at which I think the best represents the mix. So, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the dynamic of the mix and the, the sounds are all, you know, cohesive. And maybe every once in a while I send something back and it's a little too loud or it's more often it's not quite loud enough. Uh, but most of the time, that's where I think it sounds best. And it might be able to take a little bit more pushing, but not much. And and sometimes people ask for a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, what happens is they compare it in a, a very rudimentary way to other things like their favorite songs. For instance, this is very funny to me. Last year, I got people calling me all the time or, or emailing me when they were getting ready to do a project with me and the last thing they would say is just make it as loud as drake's record or we love drake's record or we love the sound of drake's record that's why we called you blah 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 now the last record i did before this one was very loud and That's the
0: uh, if you're reading this, yeah, it's too late,
1: yeah. So, uh, you know, I my assistant would laugh because every time somebody would say something like that, I just I'd want to shoot myself because it's mm. so much more complicated than that. But in any case, yes. people would a, I, loud,
0: a loud record, uh, as I think is often professed to people and for the listeners. It's like the best analogy I ever heard is about how when you listen to a Chris Lord Alge mix, if you put it on a meter, it's usually quieter than most. You know, amateur metal mixes, but it sounds louder because he's optimized. Yeah, because he knows what he's doing,
1: you know, and I get a lot of people who who frankly are not. Let's just say not as experienced as Chris Lord Alge or any, any (laughs) Lord Alge. They're not. they're just. Well, I I mean, those guys also have 40 years. on. on on It's totally understandable, but like they'll hand me something, for instance, that, you know, is like outrageous and they'll say, hey, can you make it louder anyway? It's uh, it's that's my cross to bear. But, uh, you know, I get into that conversation a lot with people like most of the time when I send something back to somebody, it's as loud as I think it should be. And, you know, if they want it a little louder, then I kind of have to back out a little bit like, eh, I don't think this is going to get any better, but I'll make it louder for you. And it becomes kind of like it it, it reverts from my doing my best to my trying to interpret what they want whether or not the song in question has the loudness potential to hold up under that kind of pounding, you know? So uh, I do my best to make everybody happy, but that's a big mistake that some people make where they end up putting out a record. The reason why it's a mistake, let me just be clear, is not is not for any artistic reason. You want what you want and that's great. The The reason why it's a mistake is because if your song doesn't get better sounding, let's say for instance and it it doesn't get better and you put it in the marketplace and that loudness doesn't help it sell more then mm-hmm. why are you doing it and so it's a mm-hmm. it ends up being kind of a, a mistake of conception where you know they're sort of working out of a point of fear out of a place of fear where like if it's not loud enough it's not going to sell and no one has any evidence at all mm-hmm. Th- that shows definitively that louder records will sell more or sound better even and the the point i try to make to people is that th- this is not like somebody in a club spinning on vinyl one guy's record against another and the other guy's record is crushing you know a- a- and your record's not loud enough that doesn't happen anymore mm-hmm. and it, it, it yeah there was people a time like when- our-
0: There was a time when that was the case. It was called 20 years ago. Yeah,
1: there was a time, and it was totally – I mean, there is still an argument to be made for loud for the club. That's the only place that works because if the energy drops on the dance floor and the first thing the DJ does is turn everything up to 11, and so he has nowhere to go, right?
0: But I I have to say I don't know any DJ who's playing – I go to a lot of clubs where there's music being played because I live in Brooklyn and I party. and. Everybody, I don't. There's no DJ I've watched in the last ten years who doesn't do some level matching between tracks. Yeah,
1: well, that's the thing. It's like you got to let these guys do their thing. Like, it, 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 basically, playlist people. You're, you're you're when you're dealing when you're judging based on level, you are shooting at a moving target. The the someone listening on iTunes either has sound check checked in which case your song which was louder than everybody else's is going to sound smaller because they equal they they even out the the level of every record you know the based on an average so like the, your record could sound tiny and then if you're if you're doing it for a playlist that's going to go on say the radio making it loud past a certain point is also counterproductive and the reason for that is every radio station has a broadcast limiter at the end of the chain it gets programmed by the station engineer, and it's usually a set and forget thing, right? It's not, yeah. it's not dynamic. It's just a brick wall limiter set at a certain thing, so that they don't, you know, kind of um, get in trouble. So, yeah, you don't overmodulate. With you don't the FCC, overmodulate. Yeah. You don't. You don't get yeah, in trouble. Yeah, this is my old job. Yeah, you don't get in trouble with the FCC. It's set and forget. And then, what, so what happens is you feed records of varying average level through this limiter and if your record is over the point at which it triggers the limiter constantly it's just going to squash down on it right it's just going to squash down on it until it's not a problem and then if you or another record that might be at or under the average level that triggers the the limiter it's going to sound gigantic because it's all going to get sucked up into the limiter and it's just mm-hmm. going to get blown up and be huge i had this experience personally it was an epiphany driving home from upstate New York, listening to some college radio station, which was playing some really eclectic stuff. And I had, you know, as I'm driving, I'm listening to some Nickelback or some modern rock thing with like heavily layered guitars and pounded with limiters and et cetera, et cetera. And then right after that came on Joe Walsh's Life's Been Good to Me So Far. And there's almost Hmm. nothing happening in the beginning of that song. It's like a guitar hmm. riff and then a kick drum and a and a snare drum. And it sounded gigantic, gigantic. Hmm. And it was dwarfing the modern rock record. I mean, it was way bigger. And when the chorus came in, it was just glorious. It was huge. And I was just laughing, literally laughing hmm. as I'm driving. Going, oh, my God, this thing is gigantic. So, wow. you, so you've got that experience, right? You You may not be getting – so in the meanwhile – you you have this kind of mythology in your head about how it has to be a certain level or as loud as you can get it for the radio. This is not just the artist, by the way. This is like A and R people and and stuff. Yeah, oh, a yeah, lot of yeah. people have this conception. And mm-hmm. it, loud as it can be, and sometimes you hurt the music a little bit trying to make it that loud. Flatten it out. You know, you lose some dimension. You lose some power. You add a little distortion that gets worse when it's turned into a MP3. I mean, it causes all kinds of problems. So. Me, personally, I like loud music. I prefer not to listen to unintentionally distorted music. I prefer not to listen to stuff that's been flattened too much. But, you know, I'm easy. I'm not. If the music is awesome, I'm going to listen to it. Um, so it's not because I'm a prude about this kind of stuff. I've made many a loud record. I just think some people are doing it for the wrong reasons.
0: So do you have uh, any thoughts about how a lot of people are saying this loudness war is now becoming irrelevant with Spotify and Apple – Doing normalization to all your oh, listening anyway. From your
1: lips to God's ears. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's... A, uh, I'll believe it when I see it. They said the same thing about uh, YouTube and their mm-hmm. change to some sort of, uh, you know, regulated yeah. level. God bless. Yeah. Do it. But it's going to take a long time to trickle mm-hmm. down into the general artist's consciousness.
0: Yes. Yeah, so it really does seem like that takes way too long. As somebody who regularly writes articles about music, it's like... It's a five- to seven-year process, I think, sometimes yeah, to get it into it's musicians' brains. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's years. So, uh, you know, I, I'm always happy whenever anything does uh, any anybody does anything that improves the general quality of the listening experience because that's a big part of what I live for. And so, yeah, I, I, I hate to sound jaded, you know. I, uh, no. I, I think I, people need to keep innovating and, you know, there is a technological um, – there's a technological – Kind of fix for this, but it's mm-hmm. gonna, you know, human beings will take a little while to catch up.
0: I like that. What's a smart thing you see musicians do or producers as well uh, during
1: the mastering process? Home. Mm. Staying <laughs> home and listening to the shit. When I said it to, the, it's really the smartest thing they do is just be patient. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's the the thing you got to remember and respect as a mastering engineer for people who are at the end of the chain, the end of the process is that they've heard this thing so many times. Most people are pretty confused. And I mm-hmm. I couldn't say I wouldn't be too. You know, like oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's it's natural to fill in the blanks with your brain. But if you consider what happens in the most recording processes like when you're involved in the entire process you know conception of a song the initial recording the refinement of the song the finishing the mixing the mastering i mean there's a there's a lot of ways to get lost in that and i think mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people do you know they 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 get kind of uh not even just demoitis or that but that's one of the Experiences yeah. that people have, An- analysis paralysis, yeah, a loss of all perspective, of that, overthinking. Whatever it is. I mean, that more than talent, because most of the, a lot of the people, I wouldn't say most, a lot of the people I work with are more talented than I am, and mm-hmm. the, there's no reason why they couldn't be doing this themselves or making this happen themselves or deciding themselves. They they have the technological ability, and I mean, unless they're cutting vinyl or something weird like that, they're they, they everybody pretty much now, with better quality plugins and stuff, has the same capability I do might have more talent uh, the thing they don 't have that I bring to the table is objectivity and mm-hmm. i, I haven 't heard your song a million times like you have i didn 't know what it sounded like when it was in three four you know like uh, it's mm-hmm. that kind of stuff doesn 't affect me i 'm a blank slate, and that 's how I am every time I first hit play on a record it's also why there are other reasons but it it, it's part of the reason why I work fast I generally know what I want to do before the song's over and you know that's not only efficient but I I have trained myself to do that to kind of react instinctively and I'm very rarely wrong I am wrong occasionally so I, I I always double check and you know Mm-hmm. Come back to the thing and listen to it again. And sometimes I'm like, "Wow, that's a little dull," or, or something. Yep. And I'll I'll change it the second time around. But I have a very good batting average my first time out because I've, I've always worked that way, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's like a muscle. So you, it's you got to train that way. But I, I make my decisions very quickly and I do that intentionally. So I don't want to get sucked into that whole I've listened to it a million times thing and then lose my objectivity.
0: I like that. Um, what's the craziest thing you've had to do? I've had to mix it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've had to do a lot of crazy shit, dude. Like back in Sterling. Well, here's one example. Uh, I was, um, I had done a bunch of work for an A&R guy who was working very closely with uh, Erica Badu. We had, we had mixed some stuff together before me and A&R guy, and he knew what I was capable of. And he, they were very far behind the eight ball as far as, Motown was concerned, which was the label she was on at the time, and people were calling her, wondering where the record was. She was, I guess, blowing her release dates, and, and you know, she was being an artist. I mean, she's a brilliant artist, and didn't want to be told by the man what to do. And uh, so the A and R guy suggested, after they chased her down to Chungking, that they come to mastering. They book mastering and they start mastering. The problem was they weren't really done with the record. <laughs> So the A&R guy told Badu, hey, we can finish this in mastering. And that meant uh, when he didn't tell me that, he just showed up Mm -hmm. with Badu and we started working and we got, you know, five songs into the thing. And and, and I realized like, these guys aren't done yet. We're going to need to actually track in my mastering room and then I'm going to have to mix it and edit it in order to make it work. And we're talking like layering bells and and dj scratches and creating grooves and i she sang background vocals on my couch you know just (laughs) holding holding a handheld microphone and uh all kinds of crazy shit i mean it was a i think it took uh seven sessions over nine days one of them was 36 hours long oh my god yeah I was pretty burnt (sighs) it was crazy that's rough but she's (sighs) fun. I like her. She's incredibly funny and really, really smart.
0: That's that's really, uh, really something. Pretty (laughs) crazy. (laughs) What's one of the best moments you've had uh, in the studio? As you know, there have been a lot of
1: little great moments where things really worked or emotions were high because the artist was happy, the record was done, and happy with how how it sounded. I, I think maybe for me personally, the one of the best experiences was working with chris whitley i, I had been a, a very big fan of his and uh from his second record which he was recording it well i met him at sony uh i was mm. nobody i was just a tape librarian there just kind of not minding my own business and i was already a big fan of his and i kind of bumped into him in the uh actually i, I was introduced to him by my friend danny Kadar, who was the assistant on the second record After that, Mm. I would bump into Chris in the client lounge and stuff like that. And we just would talk. And he he turned out to be a great guy. And I loved his music. I really did. Mm. And and we knew each other for a long time, just kind of on and off through other people uh, for years on. And then I got to do two records for him, his uh, last record and the record, two records before that. Mm. And both times, Chris had already fallen on kind of hard times. His record label didn't have any money to make the earlier record that I did with him, and I didn't charge him much. Uh, I just wanted to work with him, it, it, and the record was great. And uh, the, his very last record that he made, I got to do that, and uh, they had no money at all, and I didn't care. I did it for free. But Chris came to that, and I hadn't seen him in years, and he looked sick. I knew he was mm. sick, and and we it was kind of an unspoken thing in the session, but he was so grateful and so happy to be there and to be making this record that it blew my mind like Mm -hmm. I don't know what he was like in his regular walking around time I'm sure he had his moments but during Mm -hmm. the record the, the end of the record the mastering he was just so happy to be there so happy to be doing it and so grateful for everybody that was involved that it kind of it blew my mind a little bit I'm glad I got a chance to work with him
0: that's really awesome how about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it?
1: <laughs> There's been a lot of bad moments. Yeah. There's been some interesting <laughs> moments, too. I mean, people who, you know, misunderstandings that have gone weird and uh, people ending up partying too hard and leaving footprints on my wall. Or, oh. That was the Wu-Tang, by the way. <laughs> they, no, very They nice, know how to party. Nice. Do, note to the future mastering engineers, don't leave the room for too long when you have <laughs> a, a room full of Wu-Tang. Uh, doing their thing <laughs> try to stay in the room you know the worst one I don't know there was a couple I think later in my career when I was already established I was doing my uh second the Puffy's second solo record he really drove me nuts with it he had uh I had been doing tons of stuff for him and, and was his go-to guy and I didn't even know this record was happening he ended up doing it one of the mixers said you should do this with a guy out in California who I won't name and he Puff, you know kind of whatever he just decided to do it and they worked on it for two weeks and he hated it so they called duro actually of all people was doing a big chunk of this record a uh, small world you know and he he calls me up on the weekend and i'm in upstate new york and he's like hey man you have to do me a personal favor i need you to come in tomorrow on sunday <laughs> and fi- and do the puffy record and i'm like what puffy record I had no idea it was happening. He just he was like, "Yeah, man, I know that wasn't my idea. They sent it to somebody in California." Puffy took the whole two weeks that they had, and now he hates the record and he wants you to do it. So, anyway, I was I was just about to tell Puffy to fuck off when Duro said, "Basically, you got to do it for me." And Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had a lot invested in the in the record, and it's a big credit. And uh, anyway, I, I I was like, "Okay, man." So I drove down to the city and i started sunday morning and i finished it at four o'clock in the morning on the, you know the next day i told puffy that uh you know i was done and, and he could call me the next day with changes and he's like whoa, whoa whoa don't leave man i'm starting my press tour at four o'clock in the morning well i guess it was that he's i'm mm-hmm. starting my press tour now i'm gonna have somebody drive the ref down to me and i'm gonna listen to it and give you changes and i'm like wait you want me to stay and wait for you to sometime tomorrow let me know what the changes are because <laughs> he swore he swore up and down that it had to be on the desk of whoever in the morning. You like mm-hmm. the, they were up against the wall and that was it. And that's what. So uh, at first I was like, nah, dude, fuck you. But uh, mm-hmm. he 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 we, he and I were going back and forth a little bit and then he switched into charm mode, which mm-hmm. was awesome because he's really good at that. And mm. even though I knew he was charming me, I was like, okay, uh, it feels pretty good. You know, you are. <laughs> I like this. You're, you're pretty charming. So uh, I guess mm. I could stay. So I stayed and <laughs> I waited. And he got back to me, of course, at like 11 or 12, whatever it was, with some mm. changes. Which I could have gone home. Be that as it may, we, w- we did the same thing every day, all day for the next, well, what is that, Sunday night? The Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We did that for four days, that routine. I I didn't go home, basically. Mm -hmm. Showered at the gym, came back within an hour. I mean, I was just there. And uh, I think I might have gone home once for clothes. Anyway, I guess it was Friday morning. Yeah, Friday Mm -hmm. morning. Everybody's swearing up and down. We're done. We have to be done. And I got about two hours sleep on my couch. And I woke up and my shoulder was dislocated. I had... I had done so much mousing with no support on my elbow for, I guess, 20 hours a day for for five days and no sleep that, like, something had gone wrong. I fell asleep in a kind of – well, it wasn't even falling asleep. It was, like, passing out in an awkward position. And I – I had to get up real early, like one one of the dudes from Bad Boy. It's, this was like what made it worse. One of the dudes from Bad Boy, just a kid, shows up at 7 o'clock in the morning. And Tom, who would get there at, at, in the morning at like, oh, dark, 30, would, came into my lounge. And he was like, hey, man, one of the guys from Bad Boy is here. He wants to see you. So I dragged my ass with my broken shoulder over to see this kid. And he goes, he goes Puffy said you were right about the blah, blah, blah. And he wants a new ref. Go In other words, change it back, undo what he asked you to do at five o'clock in the morning and run me another ref. So oh. after I got done cursing out that poor kid, <laughs> I went back to sleep, but I couldn't sleep because my shoulder hurt so bad. It turned out by the end of the day, I couldn't use it anymore. So I told my assistant, I'm like, it's up to you now, buddy. I, I mean, mm-hmm. you, literally you find out really quickly the disadvantage of working in a computer and mousing. When you can't oh, use your yeah. dominant arm. I couldn't do anything, yeah, yeah. literally. I mean, I couldn't I, even, like, anything.
0: And, I got boiling, boiling hot water on my hand last year. Oh. I, three, three days I was on one hand, just my left hand. Just, it and it's
1: wrong. It, nothing works. Like, it takes forever yep. to do a simple thing. Well, that's, yep. that's what I was trying to do that morning, and I just gave up. I went home, and uh, my chiropractor spent the next week trying to – push my arm back into my socket so that was i guess i don't know what i learned from that other than to you know (laughs) tell puffy to get lost when he tells you to when he turns on the charm like you know Uh please don't charm me i can't take the broken bones or (laughs) dislocated shoulder anyway it worked out i mean in the end you know whatever puff was happy and i was happy but i kind of took a break from doing the bad boy stuff after that
0: that that is really funny, so to wrap up, let's just get to know who you are a bit uh musically. Give me five of your favorite records and your musical growth as a person. I don't know if
1: I could give you five of my favorite records. I think I could give you five of my favorite artists and sure, that's that great. would have to be, and this is of course a very small sampling of what I like, but it mm-hmm. would be probably Peter Gabriel from his first solo record to about so.
0: Not nice. that I don't like
1: the new ones that's just what I think he was yeah. a ge- genius I'm, and, I'm, I'm, with, I, I, I'm with you that priest slipperman not so much yeah.
0: but then up to
1: so that's yeah, great exactly and 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 then, uh, Saint, like Joni Mitchell kind of her mm-hmm. her middle years uh, I don't remember the sequence of her albums but albums like for, kind of from like uh, big yellow taxi to mm-hmm. you know whatever. I can't remember the names of some of the titles, but like, there's like a five record period in there. That's just extraordinary artwork. And um, same thing with, uh, with Stevie Wonder from his period post little Stevie Wonder when he, when he really came out of his shell. What was it? Inner Visions or mm-hmm. Fulfilling His First Finale, wh- whichever one of those came first through Songs in the Key of Life. Or, uh, Songs mm-hmm. in the Key of Life is the first record I ever s- stole from my parents. And uh, mm. uh, and took it for my own and kind of hid it in my room, because it mm. meant everything to me. And then um, that's three artists. And then when I was a kid, I was into like rock, so Zeppelin mm. and Aerosmith. Same thing, kind of middle period, like, or Zeppelin from the beginning, Aerosmith from the beginning too. Come to think of it, mm. through uh, through right when Joe Perry quit, and uh, mm. you know, and then uh, that's five. Very, There's so much cool. more. There's mm-hmm. so much more, but that's that's five.
0: Can you tell us about anything you've been working on lately that you're allowed to talk about? Yeah, that sure. You're excited Let's about? see. Well,
1: you, you know that the Drake thing just came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, great it's Pretty awesome. He, he did a great. He did great work. And then there's. Uh, I'm going now now officially the most streamed
0: Spotify record in the history of music. Drake uh, or, is always
1: breaking the internet. Man, he's mm-hmm. just uh, that guy. He's that guy. He's got it figured out. Uh, I'm looking forward to starting the new Ingrid Michaelson record. Very Very excited about that, and it's going to be great. I did one song for her so far, and she's just terrific, and Mm -hmm. and a nice person. And uh, you know, I I, I've been doing stuff, a lot of rock stuff from upstate New York lately. Uh, Chris Maxwell's new record was really cool. It's called Arkansas Summer. I work a lot with. Mike Birnbaum and Chris Bittner from Applehead uh-huh. Studios. And they do some amazing stuff. They, they're, they, I've done some live records for them, including Rich Robinson and um, Team Sleep.
0: Uh-huh. And it was yeah. just
1: amazing. And uh, they do a really good job.
0: You know, it's funny. Johnny sent me that Team Sleep thing you it's did. So it's so great. Incredible.
1: I mean, it's, it's really, I, I became a really big fan of anything that Sheena Marino happens to be in. That, mm-hmm. Actually I just did another single for his new band. I don't know how to pronounce it. it might be Sadad but he oh yeah I he's starting a thing with the bad brains and and um, or guys from the Bad brains and it's it's yes. great We did one song and it was so much fun and Chris Robinson who used to be in the Black crows I'm sorry not Chris mm-hmm. uh, Rich uh, yes. who's Chris's brother. Uh, I've done quite a few records for him, and most of them Bittner and, and Burnbaum have been involved in, and, and including a recent live record from their Woodstock, uh, I think it's called Woodstock Sessions. It's really great stuff. So that's what I'm excited about, man. If you enjoyed this episode,
0: please remember the golden rule of the Internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creators' website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at jessecannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.